The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we continue our, our series through this great book, seeing how the cross and the Christian life, they go hand in hand always. And today's passage is on sex and marriage from 1 Corinthians 7. And now we sent out a message uh, this week through the city, and I, maybe some of you didn't get that. And so I know I talked to some of you before the service started just to let you know that um, if you typically don't have your younger kids uh, in the Redeemer Kids Ministry, and as we're going to be talking about sex and marriage today, if that's something you're like, hey, you know what, uh, I'm not, I don't really want to have that writ for my kids yet. I, I want to have that conversation later. I don't want to have my four-year-old on the way home saying, um, what's that? You know, let's... let's uh, you are free to make that decision. So if you want to take your kids over to Redeemer Kids now, that's totally cool. If you're totally cool with them sitting in the service, that's totally cool too. We recognize that as parents, that that is your, your role as a parent is to be the primary disciple maker of your children. And so that's the decision we leave between you and your spouse, and that's between you and your family. Um, and so if you want to do that, we can like all bow our heads, close our eyes, and you and your kids can go. That's totally cool. There's no, no shame, no like oddness. And so we just want to free you up to, to do that as, as well. What, what I love about this book and what we're seeing through 1 Corinthians is really that no matter the issue, the Apostle Paul always keeps bringing us back to the gospel. He keeps reminding us and he keeps tethering us back to living in light of Jesus Christ dying in our sins and in light of Jesus rising again from the dead. And as we look at chapter 7, since these words come to us, not just in the authority of the Apostle Paul, but they are coming to us in the authority of King Jesus himself. Let's stand in honor of Christ and listen to King Jesus through the power of the Spirit and what he wants to say to us today. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let's pray. Holy Father, now would you send your spirit and would your word, the sword of the spirit, be wielded now among us in the hands of Christ, piercing through the thoughts and intentions of the heart, convicting where we need it, encouraging where we need it, and directing our gaze to King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So would you help us now, Lord? Feed your sheep, and may we feast on Christ together. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I uh, 
I want you just to imagine for a second being at Buffalo Wild Wings last night and watching the Rockets get destroyed by the, the Warriors. I was actually at that game, and it was horrific. It was 62 to 37 at halftime. A part of me died when that occurred. But imagine you're there, you're watching the game with some buddies, or you're out to eat with some friends, some gals, and the waiter, the server, he notices, um, you know, you're watching the game, so you're talking about the game, just kind of catching up about the game. Oh, yeah, you're having a great conversation. He sees your phone, and he sees the picture of your kids as your background. He goes, oh, you have two kids, I have two kids. You know, what ages are they? And you're talking about that, and then he says, well, hey, what do you do? Obviously, you know what I do. I work at B-dubs. Like, what do you do for a living? And you know, he's a great server. You're having a great conversation. And he brings your last Coke Zero, and you, you take a sip, and he brings the check, and he goes, hey, you know, I know we had great conversations tonight about our different elements of our lives. What do you say you and I talk about our sex lives now? You'd be like, you're not getting a tip. And I got a tip for you. Like, I'm about to beat you up. T- talk about my wife and our home and our marriage. This is unacceptable. We recognize there are some people in our lives that we interact with where there is such a thing as TMI. That's a situation of... TMI. But sadly, I think there are some of us that we still kind of interact with Jesus on that level. Some of that we want to bring as spiritual goods and services, meet our orders, meet our requests, but we still kind of have this guarded, "Mm, if I bring this to Jesus, that's just TMI. I, I don't want Jesus poking his head in different areas of my life. And what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that Jesus genuinely cares about sex and marriage. He genuinely cares about your marriage. He's way more than some kind of spiritual customer service. I think one of the things that is so striking about Jesus is how much he genuinely cares about every area of our lives. I mean, think about him in the Gospels. He cares about what people are eating. He cares about what they're thinking, how they're feeling. He cares about why they're angry. He cares about their spending habits. He cares about their their sex lives. Jesus cares about everything about us. He cares about your spending habits and mine. He cares about what we eat. He cares about our time, our words. He cares about even our sexuality. Jesus cares about all of it. Now, you may hear that and think, sit back and think, well, golly, Jesus sounds kind of oppressive to me. Jesus sounds kind of intrusive to me. He sounds overbearing to me. And that would be incorrect. Jesus himself says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. My burden is easy. Jesus doesn't create more burdens for us. And Jesus doesn't make things more difficult for us. Jesus actually lightens our burdens. Jesus actually makes life work for the Christian. And what often will feel like freedom, when Jesus is setting us free to the flesh, it feels like oppression. Listen, Jesus cares about every area of our lives because he is a complete Savior. Jesus isn't a partial Savior. He is a total Savior, an A to Z Savior, an Alpha and Omega Savior. So if Jesus is a complete Savior, and he is, this means that there is a complete walking with Jesus in all of life. All of life is impacted by walking with Jesus. Our speech and how we think about sex. If we want a Jesus that doesn't have authority to speak into this area of our life, or we just kind of want to regulate him to different kinds of things, or we don't, uh, don't 
talk about my thinking. Don't talk about my spending. I'm glad you saved me, but don't butt your head into what's happening in my marriage bed. If that's the kind of Jesus we want, it's not the real Jesus we want. It's a God fashion of our own imagination, not the true and living God of the Bible. Jesus refused to be cornered to any area in our lives. He's a free-range Savior, and we need his help. We need so much help from Jesus, and Jesus offers us the counsel, the wisdom, and the humility, and the power to walk in it. Exactly what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 7. In today's passage, as it addresses sex and marriage, sometimes Christians, we get a little squirmy when we start talking about sex. We get uncomfortable, and that may be for a variety of reasons. And I think it's typically because we don't have a biblical understanding of it. God created sex to be enjoyed in marriage between one man and one woman, and everything else is an abuse, everything else is a perversion, and everything else is a mishandling of it. Usually when we, like, we start talking about sex, people go, oh boy, here we go. Like, here comes the sex sermon. But guys, listen, God isn't embarrassed to talk about sex, and neither should we. God's not embarrassed to discuss this, and nor should we be. We, what we typically need, I've been, I've been a pastor for five years now, same church. Here's what I've seen in five years and what we need. We need more frank, honest, biblical conversations about sex and marriage, not less. And like most passages in the Bible, the, this passage is confrontational. It doesn't back down. It doesn't reel back. It doesn't hem and haw. It's bold and it's radical. This was a bold and radical passage then and is a bold and radical passage now. If, if you've been with us the whole time through 1 Corinthians, what we're seeing is the Corinthians have no problem talking about anything. They will talk about everything. They will teach anything. And they're teaching things wrongly. This is their issue. They are not nervous to talk about sex. Their problem is they just talk about it wrongly. And sadly, we can be subjected to these same errors. And as we read this passage, and as we understand, as we dive in, if we really understand what's happening underneath the passage, well, this passage will take on a different tone. I, I promise you, if you grasp what's happening in this text, you will understand this text differently than how you understood it walking in. So what's happening? Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they wrote something to Paul. Paul's about to quote them and address it. What did they say? What's being taught at Corinth? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this is something that's being taught in Corinth. They're teaching it is better to not have sex at all. If you're married, this is what they're teaching. If you're married, it's better just to not have sex. Obviously, if you're single, you're not supposed to be having sex. There's no such thing as premarital sex. It's, it's called fornication. It's, it's sin. So there's no doubt. No, single people should not be having sex. So they're teaching this to married people. They're teaching to the extent that sex is just a peripheral thing. It's not important. You shouldn't be doing it. That They're teaching it so strongly that marriages are becoming sexless relationships in the Corinthian church. And they're pushing it to the sinful extreme. Maybe you should just dissolve your marriage. Maybe you should have a conscious uncoupling. Maybe you should break off your engagement. Maybe you should just focus on spirituality and not get bogged down in these things of the world. That's why later on in this chapter, Paul is going to address divorce. He's going to address engagement. He's going to address widows and, and singleness. And he's going to say, stay how you are. Because they are teaching it's better to not have sex, and maybe you should just break up. 
just get divorced. Somewhere, somehow, this teaching has gained traction in the church. And this goes back to the ancient old heresy known as Gnosticism. The body doesn't matter. The physical things don't matter, just spiritual. They would teach, these heretics would teach, Jesus didn't have a real body because physical things are bad. They're filthy. They're nasty. They're gross. So you can see the kinds of problems this is creating in the Corinthian church. But we know it's a heresy because Jesus did take on a body. Jesus did rise again from the dead. And we are going to have new bodies. So when this teaching was pervading in Corinth, we're seeing it. Two things are happening. It's really chapter 6. The first one is, is license. Who cares? I'll do whatever I want. Let's just sin. Our bodies are nothing. These are just earth suits for me to just do whatever I want. It's really the spiritual that matters. And so people in Corinth went that route. And we saw in chapter 6, they're going to the pagan temples and sleeping with prostitutes because who cares? Some people go the other route with legalism. Bodies are icky. Sex is weird. Sex is for baby making. And that's it. If you're really spiritual, you won't be distracted by sex. And some people in Corinth went that route. You can understand. You can really kind of see the illogical connections that take place. Remember the background of the people in Corinth massively sexually immoral people. This would be like someone who, before they came to Christ, was an alcoholic, someone who struggled struggled with drunkenness. And so their thinking is, I just can't go to a bar with friends. I can't have a sip. I I can't look at it. I can't have a glass, a small glass of red wine with steak. I I can't do it. It's too tempting. And I know I'll go on a bender and things just won't go right. The Bible says that's wise. Make no provision for the flesh. So they have taken that line of reasoning, and now they're applying it to marriage. I have a really bad sexual past. I was really sexually immoral. I know I'm married to Susie now, but I just can't. I, I can't we just shouldn't have sex. It'd be better for us to not have sex anymore. And Paul says, that doesn't work here. That's not how it's supposed to function. That's not how it works. And what we're seeing in Corinth, though I think what we're seeing today in our lives too, often is that what sounds spiritual but is not in Scripture is always destructive. What sounds spiritual but is not scriptural is always destructive. This can't work in marriage because our bodies are not our own. We saw in 1 Corinthians 6. We saw last week our bodies are not our own. They were bought with the price of his blood, and so now they belong to Jesus. And since they belong to Jesus, we are to glorify God in our bodies. That applies to you're not allowed to go and be with the Corinthian prostitutes. And Paul takes that same angle. Now he applies it to marriage and says, when you got married, your body is not your own, but it belongs to your spouse. So you take 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7, and if you're married, you are learning about your marriage bed and see really who has authority over your body, Jesus, your spouse, and your last. Now, I said earlier that if we grasp what is actually happening in this text, it would take on a different tone than what we typically think. It seems that when most people hear this passage, they think, there goes Paul telling women to just have sex with their husbands already. And men hear this passage and think, see, that is not what this passage is saying. Don't you see there's so much more going on here? This is why when I first read this passage, I think, why are husbands being told they are not supposed to be depriving their wives of sex with them? What universe does that happen in? (laughs) It's foreign. But of course it happens. It's happening here. It actually happened in Puritan New England. There's accounts of them doing, of excommunicating a man from the church because he refused to have sex with his wife. He would not repent. Why? Because this is a matter of not just bodies. This is a matter of lordship. 
is Jesus Lord of my life or not? And I know it happens here too. Men deprive their wives from God-honoring sex with their pride, with their anger, with unrepentant sin that creates this environment where no one would want to be intimate, where sex begins to be viewed as just a commodity and not something to enjoy. Men deprive their wives of biblical sex when it's all about him and not about her. Even the one another's apply to the marriage bed. Look to others' interests more than your own. That goes with us everywhere we go. So while we may not be struggling with the exact same temptations as the Corinthians, we are still struggling with the same temptation, an unhealthy, an unbiblical view of sex and marriage. Still, sex is still often viewed as something as a privilege for the husband and a duty for the wife. That's a demonic view of sexuality. What we all must face, whether you're married, single, this, ta- this passage, is, this is preparation mode for you. This is adjusting your thinking. You're a widow, you're celibate. All this applies. And we're going to talk about later how this applies to all of us in the room. But every single one of us must face this question. Will I conform to God's word? And will I believe and live what the Bible says about sex and marriage? Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All of us hold marriage in honor. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So every person must ask, am I holding marriage in honor? And this ties to a God-honoring view of sex. It's only for marriage. One man, one woman. So every person must ask, is my view of sex holding marriage in honor? Is it honoring to my spouse? Or is it just honoring to me? Am I holding sex and marriage in honor, or do I view it as a, I could take it or leave it? Am I holding sex and marriage in honor, or in apathy, or indifference? These are very real questions, essential questions, and they're meant to bring us to an accurate Christian ethic of sex, and we need that because of what Paul says next in verse 2. So look at verse 2. But, so he's, he's I'm going to dismantle what you guys are teaching, Corinth. I know you're saying that, but here's the problem. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, you could put parentheses, God has designed it so. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul sees what you're saying. He says, I see what you're saying. I'm calling the bluff. We're going to fold on this. And here's reality. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Now, this verse is not teaching what it looks like in English. That, okay, everyone in this room, get married. That's not what Paul's teaching. Because that would contradict what he's going to say later. If you're single and you want to be single, and you feel like you have the gift of singleness, and you feel like you're called to celibacy, hallelujah, stay that way. Unless you're burning with passion. So he's not saying everyone in this room needs to get married. What he is saying with this phrase, each man should have his own wife. That is an idiom, that is a euphemism used throughout Greek literature, secular and Christian, and it always means sexual relations. Have. So each husband, each man should have his wife, and each wife should have her husband sexually. Paul, so now Paul's saying, I see what you're saying, Corinth. No. No, guys, marriage isn't meant to be sexless. Because of the temptation to sexual morality in the world, each man should be having sex with his wife and each wife having sex with her husband. It's fascinating to me that Paul writes this. 
He's just discipling them. The Christian life is a whole life. It's total life under the Word of God. I mean, we need to have theology of election and salvation and ecclesiology and theology of sex. Because this is Christianity. It's all of life under the reign of God's grace. It's fascinating that Paul says, guys, it's right to have sex with your wife. And ladies, it is right to have sex with your husband. Both men and women addressed. Both called to be giving of themselves to their spouse because of the temptation to sexual immorality. (laughs) Corinth was a tempting city. Thousand prostitutes roamed the street every night. This city was so tempting, it would make Vegas uncomfortable. But there are things you can access on your phone, your computer, your TV that Corinth can never dream of. Pornography is now digitized prostitution. And it's cloaked as being secretive, but sin is never secret. It's never isolated. It's, it's never hidden from the eyes of him who made the universe. And if marriage is malfunctioning in the marriage bed, it, it heightens the awareness of the temptations. It doesn't bring on more. Because they're always there. But now it just heightens the awareness of them. It becomes more alluring. That's exactly what Paul's saying. If sexual desire isn't being fulfilled in marriage, you're going to be more tempted. And if sexual desire, we must realize it's not a sin in marriage. It's meant to be fulfilled. It's meant to be enjoyed. You're meant to to drink deeply of it. Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That doesn't mean just rejoice when your wife's young. That's not what this verse is saying. Saying that, that, that lady you married, rejoice in her the whole time. A graceful doe, a lovely deer, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You see where the enjoyment's located? Her. Her. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Every other woman's forbidden. And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. I love how real the Bible is. Enjoy her. Stay away from that. And when God-given desires aren't met, the temptations become noticeable. And this in no way blames a spouse for adultery. But Paul's stating the scary obvious that sexual temptation is real, and having regular sex with your spouse as a part of the fight of holding marriage in honor. Look at verse 3. His next truth is that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So Paul speaks of rights here, conjugal rights. I'm I'm assuming this is not a phrase you used on your honeymoon. Are you ready for conjugal rights, dear? This is is probably not something that happened. And you read this and you're like, no rose petals, no chocolates. This is not very romantic, not a romantic comedy of Paul. Drew Barrymore will be nowhere in a passage like this. This, this is not, but let's, let's read it again. Well, what Paul, he's getting right to the heart of what, what we need to hear. Read verse 3 again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It does not, you've you got to hear this or you will misapply this whole passage. It does not say, husbands, take your conjugal rights. It does not say, husbands, demand your conjugal rights, but give, but give, and wives the same, give, 
This is not a verse for demanding sex or cornering or coercing your spouse with the Bible and putting a guilt trip on them. You will abuse God's word to do that, and you will dishonor God, dishonor your wife, and you will dishonor marriage. This is not something you can go, I know you had a long day, dear. I know it was the kids were crazy today, and I know it's 11.30 p.m., and you're getting up at 5, but I have needs, and I have a verse. <laughs> That's satanic. It's a horrific way to view sex in this passage. What does Paul say? Give. Give to her. Give to him. It's a huge difference. I love what John Piper says. He does not say, therefore, stake your claim. Take your rights. He says, husband, give her her rights. Wife, give him his rights. And in verse 4, do not refuse one another. In other words, he does not encourage the husband or wife who wants sexual gratification to seize it without concern for the other's needs. No, instead he urges both husband and wife to always be ready to give their body when the other wants it. What's Paul's reasoning behind the giving of your body to your spouse? It's verse 4. 4, here's a reason. Verse 3 is true. Why? Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, for we each yield our, the authority of our bodies to our spouse. Husband has authority over his wife's body, and the wife has authority over her husband's body. This applies to all of marriage. This applies to all of life. When you become one flesh, this changes the dynamic of your entire life. Listen, I would love to have a beard. I mean, like, I would love it. Every time I go out to eat with a group of Acts 29 pastors, and these guys have these epic, awesome beards, and we're usually sitting down, and, you know, the waitress comes up, and usually some jokes made like, hey, Metters, you and the waitress, the only people without beards. I'm like, yeah, cool. Thanks. But wh- here's why. Natalie likes a clean, shaven Jeff. I don't have a beard because she has authority over my face, and God bless her. She's got to get, like, more jewels or something for this mug. (laughs) So, guys, if your wife hates your beard, you play the man card and you shave it off. It's that simple. And it's pride that really keeps you from going that way. And if a woman mentions to her husband, dear, you know, I want to do something different with my hair. I'm thinking about getting a pixie cut. What do you think? And he kindly, graciously says, babe, I just, I love it when you have long hair done. The Bible informs what you do. You keep the long hair. This is how being one flesh works. It's not just about you. It's about your spouse. And this verse, verse 4, this was radical in the first century, Greco-Roman culture. It was countercultural. it was radical, and it was a take-you-back statement. Because let's look at it again, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Every man in that culture and every man in this culture would be like, yeah, that's right. Every culture taught that. But they didn't teach the next part. Likewise, this is like the, like Tim the tool man, uh uh-huh. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Not only... Does the husband have authority over his wife's body? Every culture would think that. The wife has authority over the man's body. 
No other culture and human history ever taught anything like this until this moment. Scholarship and history tells us that this concept first came about right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from the Apostle Paul. Radical view of sexuality. So many then and so many now think sex is just a benefit for the husband and a byproduct for the wife. The Bible doesn't look at it that way. It's not taking, it's giving. The husband gives. The wife gives. The husband has authority. The wife has authority. There's mutuality here. Both enjoy, both give, both offer. That's not to say both pursue, both offer. If sex is perceived as a chore to you, you're not doing it right. And I said it that way because I wanted to say it that way. If sex is perceived as a chore to you, you aren't doing it right. It's just, it's not in faith, it's just in flesh. When a wife views sex as a chore, it's unchristian. When a husband views sex as a demand, that's unchristian. A Christian sexual ethic was a light in the darkness in the first century, and it will be a light in the darkness in our day in the 21st century. And I hope you've heard the truth. Don't use sex as a weapon, as a bargaining chip, or as a punishment to kind of depriving your spouse. In one sense, I mean, that's totally right. In another sense, I think Paul is saying we need to use sex as a weapon, a weapon against the satanic powers. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? Why the urgency? Why the limited time? Why the coming back together so quickly? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You have a real enemy prowling around you wanting to destroy your life, wanting to destroy your marriage. Because your marriage is a living and breathing icon of the gospel, of Christ and his church. And he thinks, our enemy thinks that if maybe, he knows he can't steal you. He knows your salvation is secure in Christ. But he thinks maybe I just can discredit the church. Maybe I can discredit the the Christian message a little if I can just tear down these living, breathing parables known as marriage. Paul advocates for regular sex among married couples as a way to lift up the shield of faith against all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is spiritual warfare. And he doesn't say how regular. That's between the husband and wife. I love what Craig Bloomberg, a great commentator, scholar, says, a husband and wife should have sex so often so that neither is frustrated or tempted to cheat on the other. Husband and wife alike must be sensitive to the emotional, physical states of each other and not insist on sex on demand, but neither should one partner consistently try to get out of satisfying his or her spouse's conjugal needs. I mean, there's all kinds of factors, we know, that we must be wise and caring and loving and gracious and sensitive. Pregnancy and sickness and post-pregnancy, menstrual cycles, travel. I mean, there's all kinds of factors that you must wisely discuss in your marriage and wisely navigate. As a pastor, one thing I've noticed about marriages is how little open, honest, and non-combative conversations take place, especially about sex. Guys, we, we've got to have these non-combative, just you speak freely, I'll speak freely, graciously, gently, lovingly, as Christ would have us speak, so you can have these real dialogues. If you wish sex was more regular, approach the conversation in a kind way. Your spouse may have no idea and he or she may be ready and willing to serve, really to give. 
if you wish your spouse was more sensitive to your needs and time of day and I mean, all, all these kinds of things. They need to be brought up. But if husband and wife will both die to themselves and love each other as they would love themselves, the marriage will be amazing. It will be amazing. But both must die. You can't just think, well, if she would just die a little, then no, no, both must die. Sort through your feelings together. Talk about real, open, honest, candid moments. If, if, if let's say the wife says, you know, one night I'm just I'm really tired, babe. I, I I could go to sleep right now. I mean, my eyes were falling asleep while we were watching that show. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I totally got gotcha. you. She goes to bed, takes out her laptop, and she's on Facebook for 45 more minutes. What does that communicate to him? I'm not too tired to fiddle on the internet, but I'm definitely too tired to fiddle with you. And then the husband rolls over, gives the cold shoulder, doesn't want to talk. Does, what does that communicate? And she tries to, dear, are you okay? Or, mm-hmm. And then, okay, well, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Let's, I'm, I'm ready. Let's, let's be together. No, I'm, I'm fine. What, what is that? I'm not interested in you. I'm just interested in sex. Depriving each other is forbidden, clearly. I don't think depriving each other is, hey, I'm tired, it's really late, i got to get up really early tonight. Maybe, can we, let's be together tomorrow. I, I don't think that's what this is talking about. That's just poor planning. <laughs> you just got to work that out. <laughs> but what if it is 11.30 p.m.? And the wife does have to get up early, and, and she has a late girls' night tomorrow, and then the husband leaves the next day to go on a business trip, and he's going to be gone for two weeks. I mean, so what then? I think then you talk and go, I, I think we should be together. Depriving one another is really, it's an ongoing state where a spouse begins to feel robbed. That's the language Paul's using. The simple charge, don't deprive. But to Paul, there is one instance. There is one instance where he could possibly think of where depriving could happen. And he basically says, you know what? I can think of a scenario. I love he uses the word perhaps. Perhaps, if I'm just going to spitball in here, I can think of something. Maybe you guys are praying so much your nights are so consumed with prayer, you're so enthralled in prayer that sex, and you're probably fasting because you're praying so much, and food, they're all on the back burner. And you, you agree upon that. We just got to pray. We're praying so much. He says, okay, agree. It's got to be a short time, and then come back together real quickly. That's his perhaps. Now, I doubt that sex depriving that occurs in some marriages is because one of the spouses is a prayer warrior. I doubt that's what's happening. Notice all the qualifications he puts on this. How the planets and stars must align for this this qualified season of pausing on sexual relations. It reminds me of Captain Planet. You remember this TV show? This this weird superhero. One of those like just bizarre superhero shows. But all these kids had these rings. They could summon Captain Planet. If they all came together, earth, wind, water, fire, heart, Captain Planet. And he would show up. I think Paul's kind of saying the same thing. If all these things come up together, okay, you're, you can be deprived. Take a break. But what are all the qualifications Paul puts on it? The first one, I think, is perhaps. Just this, okay, perhaps this would happen. And look at it. Both agree, verse 5. Limited time, short. And you're devoted to prayer. And then he says, come back together quickly so you're not tempted. When I'm reading this, here's one thing that strikes me. It says, okay, you can be deprived for a little bit because you're praying so much, but come back together quickly 
because of, this, because of Satan tempting you. I read this, and my first thought is, why doesn't he just say, hey, why don't you just pray about the temptation? You ever think about that? You're praying, you're being tempted, you need to get with your spouse. He could have said, just pray. That'd be a spiritual thing to do. But also having sex in marriage is a spiritual thing to do. It's an attack against the satanic powers that want to destroy your marriage. It is lifting up the shield of faith. This is kind of like, man, I'm really thirsty. I'm going to pray for some water. You got a faucet. You have cups. You have everything you need already to go forward. And you might be thinking, look, you don't know my situation. You're right, I don't. It would be impossible for you to know everyone's situation in this room. But God does. And was this verse written for you? Absolutely. So you must figure out how you must change, you must repent, you must walk in holiness, and how you're to live this out. No husband is exempt. No wife is exempt. We must be on guard against creating little footnotes in our Bibles, creating our own study Bibles. Well, that's not what this really means for me. Putting little asterisks as we read. Deflecting away. What element I love about this passage is that everyone heard it in the church. Everyone heard it. It wasn't like they're reading this letter to the Corinthian church. He goes, okay, now we're in chapter 7, so now let's have a breakout session for married people. And now we're going to have a breakout session later for single people. And we're going to have a breakout session for the, the temple prostitute going people. No, everyone heard it. Why? Why did everyone need to hear Because it's very easy for singles to hear pastors like this and go, well, this doesn't apply to me. Oh, it definitely applies to you. That's an that is an American, unchristian way to understand the Bible. Because we hear things that go, well, that's not relevant to my life situation. I'm out. Because we don't view each other as brothers and sisters, as the body. So we're all in together. We're invested in each other's marriages. We're invested in each other's relationships. Because Christians care about each other's lives. So there should be single men in the church that encourage married brothers to live this out. And if a married man is like, oh, you don't know, you're not married, that's just pride. That single man doesn't need to know. He just needs to know the scriptures. I think our women's accountability groups with trusted and loyal friends, the question ought to be asked, are you giving yourself joyfully, lovingly to your husband? This is a command from Christ. This is part of being discipled. Are we obeying all that Jesus has commanded us to do? This is about living under his lordship. How real is Jesus to us? Because he wants what's best for us. This is what's best for us. And husbands ought to be asked, are you demanding or giving? Are you honoring your wife? Or are you being selfish? Are you living with her in an understanding way? Guys, if these conversations won't happen in the church, where will they happen? This is a safe place for them to happen. If they don't happen in the church, I tell you, will they happen? They will happen in your mind as you look at pornography. Well, if she would have been more regular, then I wouldn't be doing this. You could have had that conversation. They'll have that conversation in your mind when you begin to contemplate committing adultery, and then you'll try to justify your adultery. You'll begin to have these conversations as you're sitting in the lawyer's office getting the paperwork started for divorce. Have the 
conversation. Submit to God's word. Now, you may have sexual morality in your past, and you feel really convicted. You're feeling really, like, I've really messed this up. Listen, everyone on the other side of puberty has sexual morality in their past. All of us do. Thoughts, actions, lusts, our eyes, our hands, fornication, adultery, and maybe you have a painful past. Remember, remember 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's admonition to them in the middle of the chapter, and he lists off some sins, sexual morality, and he says, and such were some of you. The Corinthian church dealt with this. And he looks at them and says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the blood of his cross. And if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And the old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Jesus is in the business of changing our pasts, of redeeming our past, and giving us a bright future in him. His death and resurrection makes you a new person, gives you new mercy tomorrow. Your marriage can change today and never be the same again for the better tomorrow. Jesus is a total Savior. If you will trust him, if you will walk with him by faith, he can redeem all of our paths. That's what he does. Trust him. Look to him. Repent and believe today even. Repent of unbiblical, Christ-diminishing thoughts on sex and marriage. If you're sitting here thinking, man, we are, my wife and I, we are, we are totally not anywhere close. There is therefore now no condemnation with those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a new, a new way to walk tomorrow. And God's not looking at us going, you guys. He's looking at us and going, are you, are you ready now? I'm ready to walk with you. Let's have a new future together today. As married couples, since we were bought with a price and our lives are not our own, may the blood of Christ sever our pride, sever our selfishness, and may we give freely to our spouse and therefore glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray. If we're serving communion today and band, you guys can, can come up. As we transition to communion, let's Confess any sins that we need to. Confess any known sin. Maybe a not holding marriage in honor, thinking unbiblically about marriage and sex. And maybe even if you need to, just you and your spouse already know what's going on. And maybe you just need to put an arm around, hold a hand, and, and you know that will say, what needs to be said? It will begin the conversation. Do that. Lord Jesus, would you help us? You know our weaknesses. You know our temptations. We do not, we do not have an unsympathetic high priest. So we look to you, Lord, submitting ourselves wholly, unreservedly to your word. Would you help us to walk in holiness and walk in what you have designed and what is best for us so that we are finding more joy, not less. So we are finding more satisfaction in marriage with you, not less. Help us, Lord. We trust you. We look to you to give us all that we need for life and godliness and even in helping us hold marriage in honor. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.